Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting April 25th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk with Scientific American Editor-in-Chief John Rennie, just back from a big science journalism conference in Australia, and Bo Hammer will talk about the Franklin Institute Awards being given out this week in Philadelphia, as well as some other things. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, John Rennie. He was in Melbourne last week, attending the World Conference of Science Journalists, where he was a member of a panel talking about peer review in science publishing. And he also has some comments about a truly out-of-the-box idea about human burial rights. I spoke to him in the library at Scientific American. Hi, John. How are you? Hi, Steve. Just fine. You were uh, at this conference and you you were discussing you're on a panel discussing peer review that's right it let's was, talk about what peer review is first of all that was actually one of the things that uh, that we talked about on this panel this this was a, a panel called peer review of peer review because what they wanted to do was they wanted to look at at the peer review process which is the one in which scientists um, when they're looking at uh, one another's work and deciding which papers deserve to appear in uh, professional journals and um, the, this panel called peer review of peer review was in effect to try to size up how does this process work for uh, some of the different constituencies involved? How does it look these days uh, from the standpoint of the people who are publishing the peer-reviewed journals? How does it look from the scientists um, who are uh, trying to get into them? And how does it look from the, the standpoint of the journalists who are uh, looking at these uh, journal papers and then turning them into popular articles in newspapers and magazines and so on? And uh, so overall, there was a, a sense that uh, the peer review process has obviously served science extremely well over the years. Um, but there have been various problems with uh, fraud in some cases, some of uh, the big cases, for example, the uh, the Huang Wu Suk uh, Korean researcher who managed to get uh, fraudulent papers about um, stem cells and cloning. Um, that uh, that was an example of way in which somebody uh, defrauded the system. Did we actually say, though, what peer review really is? Yeah, peer review is uh, what we were debating was whether we should really refer, refer to it as expert review, because peer review is the process, if you're a scientist, of uh, having your paper uh, first scrutinized by your fellow scientists who are experts in a particular area and deciding that it that your new discovery represents a, a worthwhile contribution, something that should appear in uh, new journals. Okay, so because some people might not know that when a paper is published in a scientific journal, for the most part, mo most of the journals or many of the journals are peer review. There are some prominent journals that are not peer review. That's right. But, but most the, of them are. That's right. The, the major, the major journals, things like Nature or Science or the New England Journal of Medicine, that sort of thing. They, all of those are peer reviewed. But um, there, there was uh, some discussion about the fact that maybe uh, we should start to refer to this as expert review because, uh, quite frankly, peer review doesn't convey very much to um, most of the general public. And in fact, uh, somebody had mentioned having seen an article just the week before in which it was supposed to be a discussion of peer review, uh, but uh, the writer constantly referred to it as peer, P-I-E-R, as in take a long walk off of a short. <laughs> okay, that's pretty interesting. Uh, well, I guess that's the way a lot of authors feel about the process when their <laughs> when their works 
don't get accepted. <laughs> right. And and that actually was another consideration. There was some some question of whether or not uh the process by which papers are are being reviewed by other scientists is this fair in the way that it should be? Are there ways in which there are different types of bias that infect the system so that uh, some kinds of papers uh maybe coming from certain researchers or certain institutions do they have an easier time getting into major journals? Are there any questions about whether or not the, uh, uh, say, the funding associated for certain papers, does that make it more likely that certain results would come up? Um, all of that's the, the kind of thing that uh, can, can really corrupt the, uh, this, this expert peer review system from within. So what was the consensus view of uh, whoever was – who were the experts on the expert panel of expert review of expert review? Well, shockingly, I was allowed to actually be one of them. I was apparently standing up there representing journalists everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we also had Philip Campbell, who is the uh, editor-in-chief of the journal Nature, and um, – uh, Warwick Anderson, who's the CEO of Australia's National Health and Medical Research Council, he was more or less representing the position of uh, the scientists who would be going into the journals. And I don't know that it was the sort of discussion that was really trying to uh, push for consensus as much as just airing a lot of different viewpoints and, and various concerns for the audience of science writers that was there. Uh, science writers need to be on guard about the ways that just because something appears in a major journal, it maybe really is not, uh, it should not be t- treated as, uh, as scientific truth, uh, with a capital T. Um, Phil Campbell actually had an excellent point. He, he made the, the, the point that Peer review really only begins with the publication of a paper. Um, new work is ultimately being scrutinized by the scientific community as long as they continue to reproduce those experiments and work on it in the future. So in, in effect, uh, when something first appears in a journal, that is only the first stage in its peer review. In the long run, it may be discarded because uh, whatever would-be truths that paper tried to present uh, turn out to be obsolete or incorrect. That's probably the the most important point to to take away from this whole conversation. And it's a point I forget, that that's the starting point for the real process of of, uh, judgment by the scientific community about the validity of of a finding. That's right. So you had this this other interesting tidbit you came back from the conference with. One presentation that I thought was particularly fascinating uh, was was one that uh, it was called... uh, Way to Go, and it was uh, presented by a Roger Short, who uh, is a uh, geneticist by training at the University of Melbourne, although he's been working in uh, various areas of, of human reproduction or research for, for quite some time. Uh, he has a lot of concerns about how uh, there may just basically be too many people on the earth that we may already be at an at an unsustainably large number. Um, but he was making a point that uh, at the end of our lives, there is maybe something we could all do, a decision having to do with the disposition of our bodies that might be more beneficial to uh, the environment. He was uh, arguing that cremation, which is certainly a, a choice that many people uh, like, um, is that it's really it's a terrible idea with respect to global warming. That uh, that if we really all want to try to uh, help prevent global warming, that it would be a very good idea if we did not have ourselves cremated, because uh, when when your body is reduced to ash in that way, uh, not only of course are uh, all the various carbon molecules in your body being 
converted over into carbon dioxide, which is bad in its in its own way. Um, but of course, some of that would would be happening in the course of normal decay. But basically, you're talking about that the the crematorium oven is being heated up to a temperature of 850 degrees Celsius for an hour and a half. So there's an enormous uh, amount of uh, of fuel that's being used just to help dispose of your body in that way. And a typical traditional burial is, uh, I, I believe he referred to that a, a, as an abomination of desolation, um, that cemeteries were just, they were awful places. There's nothing, nothing really productive that grows there except for grass. And um, the bodies of the people have been um, embalmed and uh, locked away inside boxes, specifically with the aim of trying to slow the rate at which they would be returned to uh, a natural state of decay. So uh, what... Uh, uh, Professor Short was advocating was uh, that, in fact, when we die, um, you should have a vertical hole that is drilled and uh, your body should just be put down in that. No casket, just maybe surrounded by various leaves as a kind of padding. And uh, then a tree should be planted over that. Um, the argument for this is that uh, uh, over a century, uh, your average tree will sequester about one metric ton of carbon dioxide. Um, most of us, given sort of standard of living that we have uh, in, in industrialized nations, um, we're we're typically managing to produce the the equivalent of about the amount of carbon dioxide that it takes 13 trees uh, a year to uh, manage to take back in. And so over the course of our lifetimes, we're we're probably um, responsible for releasing into the atmosphere the equivalent of about a, a thousand trees worth of carbon dioxide. So this is really a way, um, this way to go proposal of, of uh, being buried in this way with this. This is one way to try to give back to Mother Earth. How was that proposal received at the conference? Um, it uh, it uh, seemed to be received favorably. Um, it was a it was a fairly short presentation, and unfortunately, uh, I didn't get the chance to ask, and I didn't hear any other uh, reporters ask whether there might be any sorts of, say, uh, legal impediments to someone just digging a hole and uh, uh, putting grandma's body in that. Um, uh, I suspect there probably are some, but uh, you know. Uh, uh, I didn't hear a lot of discussion of this because, and, and if there had been, I just know there would inevitably have been some way of referring to it as out of the box thinking. Um, but, right, unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but you, you do have to salute the, the ingenuity of Professor Short, um, for having proposed something like that. And, uh, it also would greatly increase your chances if, if anybody is interested in the potential of someday being a paleontological find. You're really going to want to go that way. If you want to try to be a fossil someday, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years maybe into the future, that's the way to do it. You don't certainly, obviously, cre cremation does away with everything. But uh, being in a box, no good for fossilization. You really yeah. want to be in the earth and uh, have an opportunity for your bones to be to be mineralized there and uh, to just, you know, if... If you want to donate your body to science, that's a really good way to do it too. Yeah, it's it's much uh, it's much more environmentally friendly than say my own plans for uh, for my body, which are to be varnished and set up as some kind of end table. That's funny because that's our plans for you as well. <laughs> Thank you, John. For more about the World Conference of Science Journalists, go to www.scienceinmelbourne2007.org. Radio.
If you've seen the new video news feeds at the Scientific American website, they're live, easy to view, and updated three times every day. Video news, just a click away at Siam.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, tests on kitchen sponges found that the best way to disinfect them is to soak them in chlorine bleach. Story two, what could be the world's oldest tree, a fossil, 385 million years old, has been found in New York. Story three, researchers have created the world's smallest pipette, which can dispense a precise billionth of a trillionth of a liter of fluid. And story four, some good news, a census of mountain gorillas in Uganda has found that the rare primates are actually increasing in number. We'll be back with the answer, but first, as we told you last week, the Franklin Institute is giving out its awards Thursday night, April 26th, recognizing achievements in science and technology. Astronomer Steve Squires, who appeared on this podcast on April 12, 2006, is one of the honorees. There are also events going on Wednesday and during the day Thursday. Bo Hammer is vice president for the Franklin Center at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. I had a chance to speak to him recently in Scientific American's library. We spoke about the awards and about his interesting background as a congressional science fellow. Hi, Dr. Hammer. How are you today? Great, Steve. Thanks. Why don't you give us some history of the uh, of the awards? So the Franklin Institute was founded in 1824 and uh, basically started as a school for uh, the mechanical arts. Um, Philadelphia was the, was the center of the Industrial Revolution at that time in the U.S. It was sort of fil- the, the largest city in the U.S. It was the intellectual cultural innovation center of the United States at the time, kind of like the Silicon Valley of its day. And the, and at that time, there weren't a lot of universities. And so the Franklin Institute's founders saw a role to play uh, to educate primarily young men uh, to essentially be draftsmen, uh, designers, uh, uh, engineers to create the all the things that were needed for to feed the economy. And so one of the things that this school would do is uh, is put out calls for important inventions, and inventors would send these things in, models of their inventions, descriptions of these inventions, and uh, uh, they would be used as sort of hands-on examples for the students at the time. And uh, gradually what happened was that uh, a committee was formed to actually evaluate the best of these things. And that evaluation process is what evolved into uh, this awards program today. It started with, you know, industrial technology, so to speak, and over the years gra- evolved into a program that's more focused on the basic sciences. One of the really interesting things about about the awards is the education component. The uh, award winners do a series of lectures Mm -hmm. and these are really aimed at the general public school kids why don't you talk about that yeah the franklin institute is basically a hands-on science museum and our mission is to inspire a passion for science learning to try to get young people and their families to come in and get turned on about science yet at the same time we've got this awards program that's about 180 years more than 180 years old uh so the question is uh why the heck does the Franklin Institute even do an awards program like this? What's the connection? And it really gets down to that mission to inspire. And so what we do is uh, we bring our laureates in. The 
the ceremony itself is on Thursday, the la- typically the last Thursday of April every year. Um, but that's sort of the end of a long week's worth of activities. And the focus of, uh, of these activities is really this educational part. Uh, on Wednesday and Thursday, uh, we have symposia at the local universities, which are much more academically flavored events, but it's an opportunity for, uh, for the, our laureate's local sponsor, the person who's responsible for, for, um, championing their case to be a, a Franklin medalist. Their sponsor is at one of our local universities, University of Pennsylvania, Drexel, Temple, uh, Villanova. Uh, and their sponsor organizes a symposium in their honor at their home institution. And it's, uh, gives us an opportunity to get graduate students and postdocs and faculty out there and get to meet these great individuals and learn about their science. You've been a congressional fellow while being a physicist. Mm-hmm. How would you characterize the the relationship between science and politics mm-hmm. that you saw up close? It was interesting. Uh, I was a fellow in uh, 93, 94, and it was a fascinating year regarding this interaction between science and politics because this was the year, 93 was the year the superconducting supercollider was, was killed by Congress. And that basically happened, uh, that, that legislative battle happened in the committee that I was working for. Um, and a lot of the reason that, that the science politics came to that point was, uh, because of, I wouldn't say mistakes, but the scientific community, I would argue in some respects, didn't do the best job it could at making the case why this, why this, uh, why the superconducting super collider was important. Why, how could they didn't make the case for Congress to justify spending, I think it would have been 14 plus billion dollars on this device that would basically answer a very fundamental question about the nature of the universe. An important question, uh, but uh, the case wasn't made strongly enough in a time when there, when science funding in general was very fiscally challenged. Um, so it was interesting to uh, to be a part of that, to see it happen, and then to see the work that was a real wake-up call to the high-energy physics community. Uh, and it sort of energized them to think harder about priority setting and making that case stronger. And so what our committee did the following uh, months is basically put in place a mechanism to uh, restore some of that high-energy physics funding in order to save the field, basically. Because the goal wasn't to kill physics. The goal for the members of Congress who wanted to, to kill the supercollider was to kill this project, but not eliminate the science altogether, but sort of put it on a different track. But we've uh, seen real funding problems in the, in the last year, especially, you know, the the department of energy funding of the national labs has, has really come under a lot of scrutiny because of the potential that Fermilab might have to close for a month, basically, because there's just no money there. Yeah. And that's, that's a lot of that's been due to this, uh, the, the change in power in Congress and uh, and the budget bills. But actually the science community, again, got mobilized and I think was able to, in these continuing resolutions, restore some of that funding to actually boost boost some of those those projects and keep them going. Since you were a fellow, two physicists have been elected to House of Representatives, mm-hmm. one on each side of the aisle. Right. So I would assume that you're in favor of that trend and would like to see more 
PhD yeah. physicists in Congress. In, in politics in general. I mean, I think uh, Rush Holt and Vern Ehlers are, are great members of Congress. You know, they come from completely different political perspectives, but they have a pretty much a common vision on the importance of funding basic research and the importance of science education and what all that means for U.S. competitiveness. And, uh, and sort of at the completely other end of the political spectrum is, and I think perhaps even more important for scientists to think about is getting involved in local politics, for example, school boards. Um, I'm on my local school board, and that's a really great way to, to get involved and have a, a lot of impact on, on local education. Do you have kids? Yeah, I have two kids. But you don't have to have kids to be on the local school board. No, absolutely not. Right. Absolutely so anybody not. out there who's really concerned about about uh, the, the uh, curriculum choices and the quality of science education at the local level yeah. can get involved by running for the local school board. Yeah, and, and scientists have had a lot of impact nationally, uh, either at the local school board level or the state school board level. For example, you know, in Kansas with, with what's been happening with the evolution battles out there, um, scientists who have gotten energized by this issue have, have had a huge impact on, on reversing some of these destructive decisions. Dr. Hammer, thanks very much. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure being here. I appreciate the opportunity. For more information about the Franklin Institute Awards, a schedule of the events going on Wednesday and Thursday, April 25th and 26th, and a complete list of the honorees, go to www.fi.edu. <laughs> Now it's time to see which story was. Totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, chlorine bleach, best way to disinfect a kitchen sponge. Story two, oldest fossil tree found in New York. Story three, world's smallest pipette created. And story four, Ugandan gorilla population increase. Time's up. Story four is true. The most recent census of mountain gorillas in Uganda's 127-square-mile Bawindi Impenetrable National Park that's the official name, finds a 6% increase in the gorilla population since 2002, up from 320 to 340 individuals. That's according to the Wildlife Conservation Society. Mountain gorillas live only in the impenetrable park and in an area just south of the park called the Virungo Volcanoes on the border of Uganda, Rwanda, and Congo. Story three is true. Brookhaven National Laboratory scientists have created a pipette that can deliver a precise zeptoliter, which is fun to say, of fluid. That's a billionth of a trillionth of a liter. If you want to know why you'd want a zeptoliter of anything, listen to the April 18th edition of the Daily Cyan podcast, 60 Second Science. And story two is true. The 385-million-year-old fossil tree found in New York looked like a modern palm. The recently discovered crown of the tree goes with stumps discovered over a century ago. For more, check out the April 18th article called Earth's Oldest Tree Had Fronds not leaves, at our website, www.siam.com. All of which means that story one about chlorine bleach being the best way to disinfect a kitchen sponge is totally bogus, because a study done by the Agricultural Research Service tested bleach, lemon juice, plain old deionized water, a dishwasher, and a microwave oven as disinfecting agents for sponges that had soaked for two days in a solution made from ground beef, and laboratory cell culture medium. 
Each dirty sponge had about 20 million microbes on it. Bleach, lemon juice, and deionized water only got between 37 and 87 percent of bacteria and between 7 and 63 percent of any yeasts and molds. But sticking the sponge in a dishwasher with a drying cycle killed 99.9998 percent of bacteria. Microwaving the sponge got the, the, uh, the other little iota. They got it up to 99.9999%. The dishwasher and the microwave also destroyed well over 99% of yeasts and molds. So when you're done cooking and cleaning, cook the sponges to clean them. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com. Check out news articles and video news at the website www.siam.com. And the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. And you can vote for us in the podcast category at webbyawards.com. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.